The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith, Kat Arney and Dave Ansell, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how scientists are using near-infrared laser light to look inside your body. And by doing this, they can measure sub millimeter resolution so they can see things down at very very tiny scales superior in some ways to a ct a computer tomography scan that uses x-rays but because this isn't x-rays it's just normal visible light it's not harmful to the person and at the same time they've managed to go one step further and get information about the biochemistry of the tissue that they've been studying why a decline in the quality of garden ponds could have disastrous consequences may seem pretty insignificant you know maybe you just use them for a bit of pond dipping uh, or that you fall in them by accident but in fact they have at least as much variety of wildlife as rivers and lakes and how a switchable detergent solution can allow scientists to recycle nanoparticles simply by separating out water droplets from oil Normally it works like a normal detergent, allowing droplets of water to dissolve in oil. But if you shine ultraviolet light on it, it suddenly ceases to be a detergent and will dissolve in the water again. The water droplets have got nothing to help them stay separate in the oil. Then they clump together and then it's easy to separate them out. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have found a way to look inside the body, but not using X-rays, using lasers. Now, this is a big breakthrough for Mark Nidre and his colleagues there at Northeastern University in Boston, US. They've got a paper explaining how they've done this in the PNAS journal this week. And what they've done is to make use of the fact that light can transmit through tissue. In fact, if you take a torch or a laser pointer or something and put it over the end of your finger, turn it on, you see your whole finger glowing red. But this also highlights the problem, which is that when light goes through tissue, it gets bounced about like a bullet going around a room in a ricochet and as a result it's very difficult to see the structure of tissues at very fine scales. So how have they got around the problem? Well what they've done is to use what's called near-infrared laser. This is a form of laser light which is near the infrared so nearly heat but not quite and they've delivered very intense but very very short pulses, less than one million million millionths of a second long to fire those pulses through the tissue and they've recorded from the other side of the tissue the first photons, the first light particles that come through, their reasoning being that the light that goes through first must have taken the most direct course through the tissue and not been bounced about all over the place and as a result it's probably got the most accurate information about the tissue and by doing this they can measure sub millimeter resolution so they can see things down at very very tiny scales superior in some ways to a ct a computer tomography scan that uses x-rays but because this isn't x-rays it's just normal visible light it's not harmful to the person and at the same time they've managed to go one step further and get information about the biochemistry of the tissue that they've been studying how have they done that well they've added some antibodies to mice that had lung tumors and these antibodies were programmed to glow and the antibodies were also programmed to lock on just to the cancer so when the laser light goes through they can see where these antibodies are but at the same time they can pick up interesting information about the tissue around the lung tumor because when they did ct scans on these mice you could see the tumor and you could see what looked like healthy tissue around the tumor but with the laser technique you see that there are reactive biochemical changes going on in the tissue around the tumour too. And so this adds a whole new dimension to how we can image tissues. So it's a very exciting breakthrough. And although they've only done this on mice so far, there's no reason why this couldn't work on humans. So I guess it's a question of watch this space. 
Oh, fantastic. Here's a, a totally unrelated story, nothing to do with lasers or humans. It's to do with ponds. And a national survey from the countryside has shown that good quality ponds are vanishing from many parts of the UK, although there's actually technically more ponds in numerical terms. And, of course, this could spell disaster for wildlife. And the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, they carry out this countryside-wide survey in the UK every 10 years. It's commissioned by DEFRA and the Natural Environment Research Council. And this is one of, in fact, the world's first national surveys of the condition of ponds. And the results showed that although the number of ponds in Britain has gone up by 11% since 1998, only 8 of them, 8% of them, are currently in a good condition. And the, col- the quality of ponds has gone down over the past 10 years. And this is really quite significant because uh, according to Dr Jeremy Biggs, and he's in charge of this charity, Pond Conservation, ponds may seem pretty insignificant. You know, maybe you just use them for a bit of pond dipping uh, or that you fall in them by accident. But in fact, they have at least as much variety of wildlife as rivers and lakes and they provide a very important refuge for many endangered plants and animals and many very rare and delicate freshwater plants and animals do depend on ponds so this falling quality could actually be really serious and of course ponds are also a very important carbon sink as well for taking carbon dioxide out of the air. And although it's positive that the number of ponds in the UK has increased, we really need to improve the quality. And in fact, pond conservation is starting a million pond project. So they're trying, at, they're starting on with 5,000 new ponds, so they're not going for the million straight away. But um, ponds are actually much more significant than you might have thought for, for but, wildlife and for carbon. But Kat, if, if the problem is the, is the quality, not quantity, just having more ponds is not going to change that, is it? It is. So they're, they're planning on trying to get people to, to make new ponds and, and keep them nice and trying to think about the areas where people put them, trying to keep them away from agricultural runoff. So really thinking about not just making more ponds for the sake of it, but trying to build good quality ponds. It's going to be very important. Cool. Thanks, Kat. Now, on another completely different subject, if you're making a machine with moving parts, you often want to make these moving parts slide past each other. Even if you've got two gear wheels, as the teeth mesh and unmesh, they're actually sliding past each other. And a big loss of energy in most machines is the friction that it takes to do that. So it's just energy which is wasted. Now, the most the traditional thing to do to reduce this is to add some lubricant, chuck some oil in there. The problem is oil is kind of, it kind of runs out the bottom, so you've got to very carefully seal everything. It gets dirty, it's kind of messy. Um, so there are other low-friction coatings like Teflon, which you can find on non-stick frying pans, and actually has been used to slide whole motorway slip roads around. However, these tend to be very soft and wouldn't last five minutes on a powerful gear wheel. Now, scientists in the Amy's laboratory in the US may have accidentally discovered a material which could solve this problem. They were actually searching for material to generate power when you heat one side of it and cool the other. And one of the materials they tried was aluminium magnesium boride. Now, this didn't work at all all well for what they were testing it for. (laughs) But when they were doing it, they discovered it was exceedingly hard to cut up. It was very hard and difficult to work. And so they did some tests on it. They discovered it wasn't quite as hard as diamond, but third after carbon boron nitride and and, um, diamond. They also found it was incredibly slippery. It had a coefficient of friction of 0.02. That means if you push down with 100 newtons, you only have to push sideways with 2 newtons to make the block move. Um, which is actually twi- more than twice as good as Teflon and more than eight times as good as steel, which has been lubricated. 
Dave, why is it so slippery? They don't really know. There are some theories that possibly you get water molecules from the air stuck on the surface, which acts as a sort of self-lubricated with a little tiny bit of water on the surface. But they're looking into it. It's got a very, very strange structure. Most hard materials are very regular, like diamond. But this one seems to have all sorts of cracks in it, holes in the structure, and it's just very strange. So they're still definitely looking into it. It's still very expensive at the moment, but they reckon that if they manage to mass produce it and coated just all the pump blades on pumps... In the United States, the reduction in friction could save over £100 million a year just in saved energy. So how would you actually use it? Because if it's so hard, how would you coat it onto materials um, like gear wheels in order to exploit it? The way they're doing it at the moment is they basically get a little target um, of the sort of precursor to it. Um, they put the gear wheel opposite it and they fire a big laser at this target. It evaporates and then condenses onto the gear wheel. And producing, they only need about sort of two micrometer thick, two millionths of a meter thick um, coating on the outside of the gear wheel to get this slippery and very hard coating. And it has the other advantage that it should reduce wear, and so things should last longer. Well, my car's still going okay. Got 130,000 on the clock, and it's on its first clutch, so it's obviously doing something right. I just had to buy a new one, so I think I could do with a. Uh, a- hydrogen-carbon boron-plated car. Chris? We're we're talking about lasers. Uh, I talked about lasers in terms of how they could see through tissue, but what about using them to actually help you hear better? Australia is the country where the cochlear implant was first invented. Cochlear implants are electrical devices which directly stimulate electrically the nerve cells in the inner ear, which is the part of the ear that turns sound waves into nerve signals that the brain can understand. And this has been used to revolutionise hearing aid design because in some people where there's damage to the cochlea, it's very, very difficult in order for people to, to pick up sound waves. What the, what the cochlear implant does is to pick up those sound waves, turn them into electrical signals, and then with an array of electrodes, stimulate the right bits of the cochlea that are sensitive to certain sound waves so that the person gets some degree of hearing back. The problem is that there's a finite limit on the number of the electrodes that you can actually put into these cochlear implants because if you put them too close together, then when you stimulate one electrode and that makes the person hear frequencies of one type, then the electrical signal sort of spreads along the cochlea and stimulates some of the other electrodes too. And so there's a limit to how many of them you can put in before the person starts to hear just interference rather than useful noises. But cochlear implants aren't perfect, of course, and people who have them still find it very difficult to appreciate music, for example, and certain types of language, like Mandarin Chinese, which are very tonal. Now researchers have come up with a way of stimulating the inner ear using light. This is Klaus Peter Richter, and he's a researcher at Northwestern University in Chicago. And there was a medical bionics conference which took place in Victoria, uh, in, in Australia, in the last week. And what this group announced at that conference is that they've shown in guinea pigs that you can stimulate the nerve cells in the cochlea using infrared laser light. So what they're able to do is to put sound waves into a laser. The laser then stimulates the right bit of the cochlea, and then they recorded the signals being relayed to the brain from a structure called the inferior colliculus, which is the part of the brain that relays sound onto consciousness. And what they found is that the signals that were being picked up in these experimental guinea pigs were almost identical to guinea pigs that were uh, of normal hearing. So this shows that it might be possible in future to produce very accurate stimulation of the cochlea to overcome deafness just using laser light, although at the moment they don't know why the lasers directly stimulate the nerve cells, but it could be something to do with a a heat-sensitive effect or some other kind of changing of the membrane, the surface layer of the cell, which makes it more excitable, and that's what recruits it. That's fascinating and and good hope because I know that cochlear implants aren't 
aren't really great, but they seem to be the best thing that, that people have at the moment. Um, and now again, complete change of subject. And now we're talking about a giant leap or maybe quite a slow lumber forward for genetic research because scientists at Penn State University have sequenced the genome, more or less, of a woolly mammoth. I love this story. I love all mammoth stories. Um, and the team have sequenced four billion bases or letters of DNA using the latest technology and also new approach to, to reading very, very old DNA. And it's also quite cheap as well. And they have about 100 times more data for the mammoths now than they do have for any other extinct species. Um, although actually probably around only 3.5 billion of these letters are actually mammoth and the rest are probably contaminating bacteria. Now the researchers think that overall the mammoth genome is probably about the size of that of the modern day African elephant. And in fact they used the elephant genome that they're also working on to try and work out which bits of their DNA they had were mammoth and which were contamination. And the key to this was doing the DNA sequencing from mammoth hair, so the fur of the mammoth. And this is an interesting thing because the mammoths have basically been frozen in Siberian permafrost for sort of 20,000 years. And they also used another mummy that had been frozen for about 60,000 years. And the hair actually preserves the structure of ancient DNA better than bones because the hair proteins almost act like, you know, plastic wrap or cling film encasing the DNA and helping to keep it free of contamination. It's also relatively easy to get contaminated contaminating bacteria and things like that off the hair. And so by comparing the mammoth sequence to that of modern-day elephants, the researchers now think that mammoths and their modern cousins separated about six million years ago, around the time that we evolved from chimps. But unlike humans and chimps, which we've relatively quickly evolved and separated into two very distinct species, it's likely that mammoths and elephants have evolved at really a much more sedentary and maybe elephantine pace. And this is probably to do with the fact that um, they... uh, don't move very fast they don't breed very quickly and um you know they they may be more susceptible to things like diseases which could explain why they went extinct so maybe those clues to mammoth extinction might be in their dna as well and also it is another step forward along with um the recent discovery that you could actually recreate you could clone things from frozen cells um it could be maybe another step to bringing back the woolly mammoth which i think would be so cool slightly scary concept but anyway i want to see it Anyway, now, it's often said that oil and water don't mix, but if you've ever done any washing up, you'll know you can make them mix by adding a detergent. This um, reduces the amount of energy it takes to to mix the two together, so it stabilises little globules of oil in water, or vice versa. Now, this sort of thing is often done in chemistry, um, quite often to dissolve something like a, um, some nanoparticles in a liquid they wouldn't normally dissolve in. It means these nanoparticles can be used to catalyse a useful experiment. Um, experiment a useful reaction and produce a useful um result at the end the problem is that you've now got all these very expensive nanoparticles suspended evenly throughout a great big volume of solvent and normally the only way you can separate these out is by spinning them using the sort of artific- centrifugal force to separate the heavier nanoparticles down like, a salad, spinner, kind of like a salad that spinner idea, yeah. Yeah. throw all the heavy particles out to the edge and get rid of all the solvent the problem is centrifuges are big expensive dangerous things and it's never going to be a solution to mass production now chemists from the university of bristol have developed a chemical which could solve these problems Normally it works like a normal detergent, allowing droplets of water to dissolve in oil. But if you shine ultraviolet light on it, it suddenly ceases to be a detergent um, and will dissolve in the water again. The water droplets have got nothing to help them stay separate in the oil. And then they clump together and then it's easy to separate them out. Right. How does this work? How does ultraviolet light make this turn from a detergent to a, not a detergent? Well, what they've done is they've taken a normal detergent molecule and added into it something called azobenzene. Now this has got a little uh, j- junction in it. And when you shine ultraviolet 
slight light on it, it kind of gets a kink in it. And this so this is to do with that, like all these molecules are very long and complex. So they've got sort of very long bendy bits in yeah. them, haven't they? And, and if you put a big kink in it, it changes all the properties of the material and suddenly makes it soluble in water and it will dissolve in water. But the really, oh. really elegant feature is then if you shine visible light on it, it unkinks it and, it, and it, you can then put your nanoparticles back in the next batch and use it again and again and it's beautiful recycling. Absolutely brilliant. Isn't science wonderful? Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. That's it for this week, so thanks for listening. This Naked Scientist News Flash featured Kat Arney, Chris Smith and Dave Ansell and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the News Flash, why not check out the Naked Scientists podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, interviews with top scientists from around the world, your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home each week. We'll be back with another roundup of great science next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.